Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theodore Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Theodore. How are you? What's new? Uh, I'm all right, thank you. New, um, new is I have a new book recommendation. Will that will that do? They're coming. Absolutely, that'll do. Yeah. I mean, I would say they're they're not coming thick and fast anymore, but there's a there's a steady drip. I'd say. Um, that so doesn't sound very nice, but okay. It's a good. It's a good. It's a good steady drip. I don't know where this is going. Okay. Um, but this week, Yasmin Ergas has been in touch about a bookshop that she encountered on a trip to Trieste. It's the Libreria Antiquaria Umberto Saba. So this is. This is a very interesting place, which anyone who knows the city will know about, I think. I mean, even if the rather melancholy work of the poet himself, uh, Umberto Saba, isn't isn't probably that well known anymore. I think there's there's a statue outside the bookshop somewhere, so people might remember that more than they remember the bookshop. But it's this incredible, incredible place. It's been around for more than a century. Uh, It's changed its name. I think it's changed its location once or twice. It was owned by Saba for a while. He bought it from someone else. But then the fascist laws against Jewish people saw him, he basically had to transfer it to, to someone else. And I think it's still in that family. So it's still independently own, owned, which is, of course, part of our criteria. Uh, it's been a haunt of Italo's Vevo, James Joyce, your friend, Lucy Dallas. I mean, well, I was really just going to say, not my, I mean, you know. You never met. <laughs> not, no, 100 years ago, maybe. I can't do my maths. Um <laughs> But yeah, he was a friend of Umberto Saba, wasn't he? Well, yeah, and, he was. and of Svevo, obviously. Well, Andy Tello Svevo, yeah. And so it just made me think of that uh, piece that we ran a couple of months ago about whether Italo Svevo and James Joyce were actually friends. Because I wanted very much to imagine them saying, oh, I'll meet you at the Libreria. Um, and maybe maybe they did. Uh, I, bet maybe they did. They did. I bet they did. I bet I tell you, especially if they had wine there, I bet they did. <laughs> I'm sure that, that, yeah, that, I'm sure that cinched the deal. That would um, do it. But these days, I think you're more likely to find uh, to find Claudio Magris, Laszlo Krasnokai. I think he's a Trieste resident, so I bet you he goes there. But yeah, it's a it's a magical place that, for all of its history, doesn't you know it doesn't feel remotely museum like. It 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 it's still you know living, breathing, working, useful. Is it only antiquarian books? Have you been there? No, it's all yes, and it's all it's not all antiquarian books. I mean, I think it made its name for you know rarities and and and, and things like that. But you can just go and 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 get any book really. I I think. I mean, I haven't been in in a, in a while, but that certainly that certainly was the case. I think that's what I mean by it's a it's a useful place. It's it's a place where you can go and you can go and work there. You know, you won't get chased out if it's you good to know if time your laptop in and, and over here. Oh, I thought you wouldn't get a job. <laughs> no, no. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're working away on something and you, you're lonely at your kitchen table, you could take yourself down there, have a coffee. I'd love to go there because I'd love to go to Trieste. Well, there you go. So, yes, thank you very much to to Yasmin for reminding us of it. You'll notice that we've broken with all convention here, uh, and although Independent Bookshop Week has has been and gone for this year, we're we're still keen keen to hear from you with your recommendations. So, tell us about your favourites. 
tweet at the TLS or email us on letters at the tls.co.uk. Now, coming up on this week's show, war permeates the arts in the United States, creating, according to our writer Alice Kelly, the most militarized civilian culture in the world. Alice Kelly will tell us more about the influence of war on American literature and culture. And we have a new poem by Andre Nafis Saley, At the Graves of Labour's Fallen, read by the poet himself. But first, Lucy, what are we going to talk about? We are going to talk about travel and travel writing, um, because you might think that since travel has been so severely restricted for so long, that writing about it might be withering on the vine or disappearing into thin air, but maybe not. The demise of travel writing has been predicted regularly since the 19th century, says our reviewer, Noor Sarawiwa, and it's always sprung back to life. Noor reviewed a book called The Travel Writing Tribe, Journeys in Search of a Genre by Tim Hannigan, and we're delighted that she's here today to talk to us about where travel writing goes from here. Noor, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's, let's jump in then. How does Tim Hannigan write about travel writing? What kind of form does his book take? Oh, it's, it's a really interesting uh, way that he does it. He basically kind of twists the genre on its head as, as he describes it. And he goes around interviewing famous travel writers in their own homes, which um, which I found fascinating because the only time you ever hear about these people is, is through their books and through their travels. And so seeing them in their kind of domestic habitats was um you know, it was really sort of fascinating. And, and the conversations were uh, incredible. You know, they said things that, that really surprised me uh, about travel writing. So he's turning it round on them, as it were, because he's the, he's the, he's the traveller and they're the people being observed. And what, do, you get, do you get insights into what they're like from, from their own homes, as it were? Because some of those travel writers, uh, particularly uh, when he goes to see Sarah Wheeler, she mm. talks about a story that um, that's in Colin Thubron's book, Behind the Wall, about a barn owl. Yeah. And um, it's very funny. In the story you say in your piece, the author, so Colin Thubron, buys a barn owl in a Chinese market, smuggles it onto a train and then releases it through the window. And Sarah Wheeler has quite a, a bracing reaction to this. <laughs> yeah, she's just like bollocks. Absolutely <laughs> <laughs> bollocks did it. Um, I was really shocked when she said that. I, don't I was quite shocked when I read it. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I mean, they are friends, so you know that 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 should be stated. Um, mm. And uh, but yeah, I was really surprised by her her candor. And I don't know if they've had a conversation about it. It'll be very interesting to see. Maybe after this piece comes out, uh, he, he'll have a response for it. But um, I don't know. I mean, thing travel writing is interesting because there's always been this. Uh, suspicion lingering over it that, uh, that the writers are making things up. Uh, I mean, I get asked that a lot, you know, have you embellished your stories? And, and the thing is that, you know, real life is often stranger than fiction. And there are things that, that happen in, 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 on your travels that as you're writing it, you're thinking, oh God, no one is going to believe this, but it <laughs> did actually happen. And I guess with Colin Subron, it does sound very poetic, this idea of buying a barn owl and then releasing it on a night train, you know, um, but it's not impossible. Uh, but but yeah, you know, that there is an element of you, you do have to shift things around sometimes in travel writing. Yeah, well, I was going to talk about that. And of course, I mean, you know about that yourself. It's And you talk in the piece about the idea of retrospective invention, which is a very nice way of saying making stuff up, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and people often, I mean, people often think most strongly of Bruce Chatwin and songlines, but he wasn't the only one, was he? No, I mean, you had people, uh, well, Hannigan himself, the author of this book, he went through, he went through Wilfred Thesiger's travel diaries and he found discrepancies between the author's private accounts and his published works. Uh, there's a lot of, apparently in a lot of uh, these uh, travel authors books, they, they tend to come across as being alone. They're taking this journey by themselves when in reality they had a local guide with them. Uh, but in the book, all of those companions disappear and he found that with uh, Thesiger's diaries that that was very much the case. And so, you know, for me, that's not exactly a lie. I guess you're you're stripping down 
the, the reality of what's happened. Uh, you're rubbing people out of the story, which isn't doesn't make it fake, I suppose, but it does, you know, for someone like Wilfred Thesiger, who comes across as this, you know, very adventurous traveler, you know, going through the deserts and what have you, to, to then find out that, you know, he had other people with him and, you know, it does take something away from that sense of, you know, him being this lone adventurer. In, in, in terms of it being, you know, dominated by a kind of white upper or middle class men, um, apart from just the straightforward inequality of that, there's also the danger of everything being seen from one point of view. And I don't even mean one person. I mean, you know, one quite particular point of view and that this is we are us and everything else is them. Do you think that's moved on a bit now? It has. I mean, with, with this particular book, um, the author does say that he he had a he had a, a a criterion for which writers he would include, and so they had to be English language, and they had to have written two books, at least two books. And so on that basis, Hannigan did have to exclude quite a few writers. I mean, there have been you know lots of travel writers out there who aren't white male public school educated etc cetera, etc cetera. but obviously you know they were the people who were the most prominent you know writers of that genre and and so you know they have dominated it but you know that is starting to change uh, unfortunately it's changing at a time when travel writing has become such an expensive genre you know as an author you need an advance, you know, of at least 5,000 uh, often to do your journeys. And, and so this idea of travel writing as the preserve of people who have a certain socioeconomic privilege, I think is still more relevant today than it was in the past. And so, yeah, you know, it is a bit problematic. You have people like Bruce Chatwin writing the song lines. It's all about Aboriginal culture, and yet he didn't talk to a single Aborigine while he was out there. And I think that was something he, you could get away with in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you certainly couldn't do that now. Yes, I suppose, yes, if he went out and did that now, you know, presumably people would be tweeting within about 10 minutes and going, no, it isn't. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why didn't you talk to us? Yeah. Um, and can you tell us about Hannigan's four figures of travel writing and what their kind of importance is relative to each other? Yeah, well, he, he identifies, uh, you know, four elements within travel writing. So you've got the writers themselves of these books. Then you have the readers. Uh, then you also have scholars like uh, academics, travel writing academics who, you know, have examined the genre uh, over the decades. And, and then you have what Hannigan describes as the travelees, which are the subject of the travel writers' books. So basically uh, the, the people, the inhabitants of the country or society that uh, the writer is, is talking about. And uh, so, you know, Halligan explores the, the dynamic between these four pillars and he talks to all of these, like, you know, people who represent each of those uh, pillars. And what was quite interesting was that when he talked to just ordinary readers of travel books, he was surprised to find that they weren't actually that bothered by uh, the idea of fabrication, like particularly in Bruce Chapman's case, even though he made up a lot of his dialogue and the things that happened in the song lines, Hannigan finds that readers were actually, you know, they, they didn't mind. They thought, well, actually this book introduced us to this Aborigine, this Aboriginal culture that we knew nothing about. And so, you know, travel writing actually is, is interpreted by some people as simply an introduction to a place or a society or, you know, certain concepts. And that perhaps uh, scholars who are very critical of travel writers in terms of fabrication or egocentricity, whatever it might be, I think scholars often uh, overestimate how much the reader believes what's being written you know, perhaps underestimate their intelligence. And, and presumably also sort of spin their own theories to a to, to a degree. I mean, you get a real sense of these four different elements of travel writing being in a very complicated, sometimes very complicated dance with each other as to which is going to win out. And there's a, a funny anecdote that you share. Um, I think it's Colin uh, Thubron who uh, 
attends a lecture on his own work, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like one major critique of travel uh, writing scholars is that the authors treat their subjects as these kind of inanimate objects, you know, who don't really have a voice. But the irony is, is that the, the travel scholars themselves are doing that with regards to travel authors and, you know, that they're talking about these authors, they're discussing their motivations, all of these things, without actually having a direct dialogue with those authors. And so, you know, Subron finds himself at some travel writing conference at a university in, in Philadelphia, and he's sitting in the audience while a scholar is talking about Subron's work. And, you know, <laughs> and Subron just, you know, finds it bizarre. But in Subron's uh, case, he's being suddenly put in the, sh in, in the shoes of the travelee, you know, and that sort of, that, that weird position of passively listening to people discussing you and your mindset. So mm. yeah, it was really, I, I, that's what I loved about this, this book is, you know, the way Hannigan, you know, interrogates these four pillars and actually has a, dis you know, creates a discussion between those four pillars, you know, which is something that he feels doesn't happen enough. It's interesting as well, that idea about the readers, you know, not minding and, and presumably being able to hold different ideas in place at the same time. And I wonder if that touches on the genre thing again. There, I was, Is there a genre problem or question? There's, there's this question of, is it journalism? Is it memoir? Is it literature? Is it fiction? As we said earlier, maybe the readers can hold all four of those at once. But, do you think it tends in one way or, or it's all of those things? Yeah, I think travel writing often reflects the ambitions of the writer itself, them, themselves. You know, some writers uh, see themselves as journalists. You know, Dervlin Murphy is one example, and Samantha Subramanian, you know, for them, it, it's they're basically continuing where newspapers have left off. Um, they're adding those, you know, intimate details that you don't get in, in news journalism. And... You know, I sort of come from that perspective as well. You know, I went to journalism school and it was while I was at journalism school that I thought, oh God, I, I can't do this. I don't, I don't want to be a journalist. I, I want to be a travel writer. I'm much more interested in those intimate human stories. But then, you know, there are other travel writers who you sense aspire to be novelists more than anything else. And, you know, I don't know whether Paul Theroux prefers to be a novelist or a travel writer he's done both um but you, you can definitely see the sort of influence of fiction writing you know in his travel writing and and you know and that's what made his travel writing so unique and interesting um, when he first came on the scene in, in the 70s and so yeah it's a very subjective genre and you know the books that come out you know reflect very deeply on the writer themselves and, and their aspirations and what they want. Insofar as we can um, categorise it, though, there's, there is an interesting subcategory, I suppose, of a reader experience, I think, uh, which, which Hannigan touches on, which is when you see your own home or, or place that you uh, feel close to written back to you by someone who isn't from there. There's an interesting tension in that, isn't there? Yeah, so, you know, Hannigan finds himself in this position where uh, he's reading about his own region. Um, he comes from Cornwall, and the writer Philip Marsden has, has written about the, the, that, that part of the world. And, um, and so, you know, Hannigan discusses, you know, what it feels like to come from a place that's being discussed by a writer who's not from that place. And again, he has very mixed feelings, you know, on, on the one hand, he doesn't quite understand what the writer sees. You know, he, the writer sees something that he doesn't necessarily see or, you know, that it, he recognises it, but, the, you know, the writers put it together, their observations, in a way that then becomes, you know, slightly unrecognisable uh, to the, the person who's from that region. And I think we all, we all experience that. Um, even when reading the newspapers, I, I remember when I was living in New York, and whenever the New York Times wrote about things that were happening in England, I thought, hmm, it's not exactly wrong what they're saying, but there was something that doesn't feel quite right, you know, mm. about it. And, and that's how, you know, Hannigan feels about Cornwall. Um, but, you know, he also felt a, a weird sort of pride as well. You know, he, 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 he describes it as an unstable emulsion of outrage and pride in, in seeing 
you know, his 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 region, his hometown being othered and exoticized. But you know, the truth is that quite often, and he he acknowledges this himself, is that sometimes you you have to have an outsider to write about your homeland or your home region uh, because there are things that you take for granted as someone who's from there you know there are things there are observations that you would not make because they're, they're so obvious to you you're mm. surrounded by it like wallpaper and sometimes you need an outsider uh, to come in and uh, and to point things out in, in that mm. way and and I found that when I wrote my book looking for trans wonderland I was traveling around Nigeria and you know there are observations that I made that are just so obvious to Nigerians living in Nigeria that they would never think to make those observations but th those are some of the things that readers really connected with and you know found quite amusing like you know for example I, I, I came across this Pay, uh, this page in the newspaper that's like you know part of the lonely heart section and it's you know it's, it's men looking for sugar mummies and you know if you tell nigerians about it they're kind of like oh yeah you know they're, they're used to that but you know for an outsider it's like oh my god this is really interesting and so mm. you know it's uh, sometimes you do have to have an outsider come in and and well you know it's outsiders who even think to write about it in the first place but you know luckily we live in a world where we have so many multiple sources of information now that the travel book isn't this one you know sole keyhole you know look into a particular country you know or society there are different sources now and, and so that responsibility as a writer isn't as big as it as it used to be yes um, it's not like you're bringing back the truth about one place and nobody will ever know anything else they've now got lots of everyone's now got lots of comparisons i suppose exactly i mean you know you look at writers like john mandeville from the 14th century and he was a complete fabulous you know he <laughs> made, made things up you know four-headed dragons and all oh sorts yeah mermaids everywhere and yeah yeah dog-headed no, dog -headed men and maidens with snakes in their vulvas to be specific Exactly, you know, and, <laughs> and there's no one to challenge him. And even Christopher Columbus took this, this you know, this John Mandeville's book and used it as a travel guide, you know. It's like, it's I mean, imagine riding out and expecting to encounter those things. <laughs> exactly. Um, so in this time of, well, first of all, everyone is severely restricted and also in terms of um, climate change uh, is another reason that a reason that in a way we're being told not to travel. Well, what does Tim Hannigan see as the future of travel writing? And, and do you agree with him? Yeah, I mean, he's not he's not sure. He leaves it open ended. But, you know, he he sort of mulls the possibility that, you know, in, in a post COVID world where we can't travel as much as we used to that, you know, perhaps we might experience some kind of, you know, renaissance uh, with travel writing, uh, where people, you know, have to rely on others for um, that sort of information, you know, about foreign lands. I mean, that's that's quite, I guess, far-fetched. I mean, we're all sort of, you know, ready. We're all dusting off our passports and just, you know, waiting, dying to get on planes again. But, uh, but you know, you never know. History has a way of repeating itself. And sometimes, you know, the future is not as futuristic as it, as we like to think it is. You know, sometimes we can end up stepping back in time. Mm. For a, a final question, um, apart from your own book, of course, what would you recommend that we read if we had, if we had, you know, one travel writer to read? Oh my god! I'm oh, <laughs> sorry. This question. Oh no! I'm sorry. You can just say yourself if you want. Just say no, my. No, no worry. Um, we could take an anthology. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. Can I have two? Yes, it's not desert island days. You can have as many as you want. <laughs> okay. I would say, um, I mean, there are many. So I love books by Dervla Murphy. I particularly like Sarah Wheeler's Terra Incognita. Then there's Tete Michel Bomassi. He was uh, from Togo in West Africa, and he wrote An African in Greenland. That was a sensational book, really, really good, you know, just full of anthropological detail. Mm. And then there's Max, Maximum City by Suketu Metha. A sort of portrait of Bombay, I think, in the late nineties or early noughties. So yeah, those are the books that I love the most. Brilliant. Well, if we can't get there, we can um, at least read about it. So, Nor, many, many thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Still to come on the show, the cultural impact of war in America from the Revolutionary War to the present day and a new poem by Andre Nafis Saley. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can follow the TLS podcast from wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we turn to Alice Kelly in the subject of war and American literature, we're stopping off in Bisbee, Arizona, the setting of a poem, The Graves of Labor's Fallen, by Andre Nafis Saley. Andre joins us now to tell us more. Thank you so much for coming on, Andre. My pleasure, dear. Thank you so much for having me. Our next item after you uh, has to do with war and American literature, but the story at the heart of your poem sort of puts us in in the context of of war too, or, or a war sort of, uh, doesn't it? It's about it's about events that took place on July the twelfth, nineteen seventeen. Absolutely right, and uh, I think war is exactly the right term to apply, and I think to be more specific, in fact, on an unacknowledged war. Um, we call them the first Red Scare, the second Red Scare. Arguably, I think that we're in the midst of a third Red Scare in many ways. But I think it's always been an unacknowledged conflict, one woefully swept under the carpet um, or swept under the desert, really, in this case. So so what happened there? I think there were mine workers who were who were deported en masse because they they were on strike and 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 I think the justification given at the time was that it endangered the US war effort. And so they were just you know, summarily put onto to, to trucks or, or into train carriages and, and carted off. That's absolutely right. When um, uh, the miners went on strike, a lot of them belonged to the industrial workers of the world, a, a union that still exists to this day. And as you said, due to Woodrow Wilson's um, wartime policies, um, essentially copper mining was considered the matter of national security. And so the sheriff of Bisbee at the time, Harry Wheeler, was given the uh, unthinkable level of power of essentially recruiting a posse made up essentially of thugs who then rounded up these men, women and children and essentially deported them, uh, not just out of Bisbee, but out of the state of Arizona entirely. And this was something that was repeated throughout this period of the first Red Scare and kept on going 
despite the um, end of the First World War. In fact, you're looking at a period that includes Emma Goldman's deportation in 1919. So this goes really beyond the First World War. It essentially took up a, a space of about five years in American politics, and the labor movement never really recovered until the Great Depression in the early 1930s. One thing I should probably say about the poem is that I was in Bisbee in the summer of 2018, um, visiting the the graves of these fallen heroes of labor, essentially, and it was on the 101st anniversary of that event. Um, and a local member of the union took a group of us around uh, the cemetery, showing us around and telling us the history of not just the town and the movement, but also of the individuals that were buried there. Most of the people who were deported never returned. They died elsewhere. Very, very few were able to come back. But of course, they lived out the rest of their lives almost in hiding because it was a company town. And and uh, they 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 had the kind of power that really would, would best be befitting a medieval lord of some kind. Um, and I think it's, it's clear uh in the poem that you that you were in Bisbee, I mean, there's such a strong sense of of, of place in um, in it. So I think when you're when you're ready, please let's let's hear it. Thank you. At the graves of labor's fallen, it is intolerable that these itinerants of anarchy should infest great regions of the West. New York Times, July 14, 1917. The best plots in the cemetery belong to cattle thieves cutthroats, bushwhackers, or as any respectable boomtown would call them, our esteemed founding fathers. But by the northeastern corner of that acre of dust of the old Douglas Road stood the graves of the Wobblies, tall as cigarette stubs. Time had made most names illegible, but what little survived made it clear that half the world lay buried here in Bisbee. Mexicans, Greeks, Slavs, Italians, some spelled down mine shafts, others grew old, but all died poor. Some certainty, at least, in the otherwise unpredictable lives led by miners in copper country. Whoever said that America skipped its medieval stage? Nothing was left unscathed by that feudalism. Wandering holy men, roofless barons, armed thugs on horseback, peasants' revolts the imaginary but ever effective specter of dark hordes at the gates. July 12, 1917, 1,200 Americans deported in a single morning, a posse, a roundup, and a 12-hour ride to Hermanos, New Mexico. All women and children heap off streets today, read the Bisbee Daily Review, but they were banished too. Blame public hysteria and spineless Woodrow Wilson, Blame General John Jay, bury them with pigs, Pershing, and his crusade against Pancho Villa. Consider also the Buffalo Soldiers, too black to die for their country in France, but not too black to shoot at Mexicans on the border. Consider, finally, that no court hears such cases except that of memory. Come sunset, I speed down the gulch to Cochise and sing, work and pray, live on hay, You'll get pie in the sky when you die. That's a lie. Andre Athis-Saley, thank you. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, a collection of poems, High Desert, will be published next summer. Now, two new collections of essays ask us to focus on the importance of war to the United States in terms of literary and cultural production. The first takes a long view, beginning with the Revolutionary War and carrying us through Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan as the last troops leave while the second addresses the First World War specifically. Together, they paint a picture of a culture founded and fed on combat. As Alice Kelly points out in her review of the collections, even Snoopy harbors a fighter pilot alter ego. Alice Kelly joins us now to tell us more. Alice, hello, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the first of the two books then. Uh, its title, War and American Literature, gives a pretty clear sense of how expansive it is. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, it's a really wide volume, War on American Literature, edited by a First World War scholar originally, Jennifer Haytock. It's thinking about war as a prominent theme in American literature, as Thea outlined from the Revolutionary War onwards. So it's no small task, I'd say. It's necessarily um, wide ranging, it's diverse, it obviously can't be comprehensive, 
but it does a very good job of trying to both think about the major wars that have happened since that period, which, as we know, the American context has numerous wars um, that have happened since its since its beginnings, um, as well as thinking thematically and thinking about new directions for war studies. So it does a good job at the end of thinking about things like war and whiteness. That's something I pick up in my review, war and queer studies, war and eco-criticism. In general terms, it's great that it's thinking about war as a theme for American literature. And this is really important. The fact that we're still doing this in 2021 is very interesting, I think. How so? In that we still uh, need a volume of this kind. When we think about how important war is to America as a a uniquely military state is how I talk about it in the in the review as a state that is marked by um, war right from the beginning as the country in the world that has the largest federal spend on its military. You know, it's 778 billion last year, which is three times that of its closest competitor, China, um, as a as a nation which venerates the veteran, um, holds ticker tape parades and Um, military holidays and in every way kind of builds the military into its civil society. It's very interesting that we're still only really just beginning to think about how does that play out culturally. And as you say, I mean, it's that's quite a big, quite a big ask of one book. So how does it go about it? How does it sort of structure itself? Is it organized chronologically uh, or, or is it thematic? It, it tries to do a bit of both, actually. So um, it's in three parts. The first part is aspects of war in American literature, um, which is touching on different aspects. Um, the chapter that really stood out to me was there on the one on medical humanities and medical memoirs, ranging from um, early memoirs, you know, Whitman in the Civil War, up to present day uh, memoirs coming out of the Forever Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, The next section is on cultural moments in the American literary imagination. That's more chronologically organized. Um, And the third section is new lines of inquiry, as I mentioned. So things like war and whiteness of themes that are very much in the um, critical critical zeitgeist. So uh, very broad ranging, as I say, it can't be comprehensive. and I wondered about the chronology at the beginning, um, the chronology of war text, you know, what goes in and what doesn't go in. And there's still discussions ongoing in war literary studies about what do we classify as war literature? Does a piece of work written by a woman on the home front uh, constitute a war text in the same way that a combatant narrative um, coming directly out of the Western Front is a war text? So I think all of those concerns are there in this volume. And I'm sure some scholars will say, well, perhaps you should have included this. But I think it really does a very good job of trying to include as much as it can. Um, And so did anything in this collection strike you as particularly original, whether in terms of approach or or subject? You you mentioned a study of of J.D. Salinger, which I I mean, that seems to me like a quite an unexpected leap. Yeah, exactly. So thinking about what going back to the question of what do we consider to be American war texts, I'd say this is a conversation we're still having. What are the key American war texts? We can probably all name some that we think of when we think of America and war. Um, some, you know, something very typical like the Red Badge of Courage from 1895, which one of the contributors, Stephen Trout, points out is, you know, the best known combat narrative of the Civil War, even though its author wasn't born um, while the Civil War was going on, it's somehow become the kind of key cultural novel of that of that war. But there are also, so there's readings of text that we might expect to see here, Hemingway's In Our Time or um, any other number, William March's Company K, Heller's Catch-22, sort of war texts that we know of and imagine to be war texts. And then texts like J.D. Salinger, this this reading stood out to me where in a chapter on veterans, the author Philip Bidler suggests that, um, I'm going to quote from him so as not to mischaracterize what he says, the troubled, disaffected, lonely teenage Holden Caulfield manifests significant symptoms of PTSD. So that's a reading that gives us a cultural text that's very important in the American literary canon, but getting us to think of it in a totally different context. So was in the Capture of the Rye Salinger being in some way affected by what he saw around him, which was the increasing levels of PTSD. 
we may, you know, that may be a reading that people don't agree with, but it's still something interesting that makes us think of Holden Caulfield and his teenage malaise in a, in a very different way as perhaps indicative of a kind of wi- wider cultural um, malaise itself. Um, is there anything there about humour as well? Because it strikes me that when I'm trying to think of of um, of examples, I'm thinking of Kurt Vonnegut and Thomas Pynchon and, as you said, mm-hmm. Joseph Heller. There's, there's, I mean, weirdly, quite a lot of dark humour in there, isn't there? Absolutely. I think the idea of treating war, treating violence with humour, coming back with a very darkly satirical mode, I think that's a key part of American 20th century literature, actually. I think that's a really important thing. I don't really talk about that in the review, but a response, um, which in some readings would be a kind of trauma response, we laugh at something when it makes us uncomfortable or when we don't know what else to do. It's an almost involuntary response or as a kind of literary mode, a kind of satire, disillusionment in the famous text that we used to think of in the British case of First World War writing is Paul Fussell's The Great War on Modern Memory from 1975. And he posits this argument for the idea of irony that we always respond to the war through a sort of dominant mode of irony that we have to think of it in an ironic term and he talks about some of those American texts actually Um, and humor is part of that how do we respond to mass violence we do it with a response that may seem counterintuitive which is to laugh at it. Uh, The second book uh, narrows things down to the first world war America isn't the first country one thinks of uh, for that as you say the US wasn't involved for long or especially deeply Uh, and yet this book makes a compelling case does it of, of that war's impact on cultural imagination. It absolutely does. And I'm really, really pleased that it's come out. I think it's actually very important in that regard, because unlike um, the literary criticism around any of the other nations, the American case of First World War literary culture is, I would say, still being, we still have to make the case for it, you know, because because um, in the American imagination, the First World War doesn't play a large part. It doesn't hold a a part in the American cultural memory in the same way as something like the Civil War, which absolutely dominates war memory in the US, or the Second World War, which comes after it, or even Vietnam, which, you know, even though it's very problematic in the American imagination and American history, it still, I would say, holds a larger place for Americans than the First World War. And that's really strange. That's a really interesting cultural ellipsis to me, because America actually produced an enormous amount of literature and culture from this war. Part of that was to do with the Committee on Public Information, which was created as soon as America entered the war. It was headed by the mastermind George Creel, who mobilized every form of culture uh, imaginable. You know, the cinema, literature, the radio, uh, songs, whatever he could get his hands on to persuade the American people of the importance of being in this war. And produced an enormous amount of culture, but we don't actually think of American First World War culture as a as a genre in its own right, in the way that we might think of it in the British case with the poets, the First World War poets that we all read in school. Mm. When you mentioned film, um, so there were American films um, about during the First World War and sort of promoting it as it were, were there? Because we were thinking about later, you say it's the most militarised civilian culture in the world. And that seems especially prominent in film. That, I mean, there's so many films that, you know, with, with people in the army or soldiers or ex-soldiers doing things and, and you know, just enormous amounts of weapons and sort of hardware. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that continues today, whether it's explicitly about wars that are ongoing or whether we're seeing it coming out through superhero films. You know, the very interesting way that often these things are allegories for whatever wars the America's the America is in at that moment. I was teaching this term Batman Begins as an allegory for the Iraq war and everything that happens in the post 9-11 moment. That's a 2005 film, but I'm sure we can all think of recent examples of films that are in some way allegorizing America's position on the world stage. Well, during the war itself, during the First World War, there were certainly a number of films that were produced, um, propaganda films like Under Four Flags or Pershing's Crusaders. There was also really, I mean, I'm fascinated by this, how Hollywood mobilised in the cause of the war because the cinema was, uh, you know, becoming increasingly important, hugely popular with the American people. And um, one of my personal favourites is Charlie Chaplin, who 
not only made shoulder arms in 1918, where we see Charlie in the trenches um, sidling into across the German lines dressed as a tree, managing to to arrest 13 German soldiers and eventually the Kaiser and the prince and saving the day only to be sadly awoken by his comrades and having to go over to fight and it was all a dream. But he also um, self-funded a film called The Bond in 1918, which was entirely to promote liberty bonds, to put money into the American war effort. You know, Chaplin was British born, but he was the most famous film star in the world in 1918. And he knew that it made a difference if him and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. went and fooled around on Wall Street in that famous photo of them to promote war bonds to the American people. And his material that he was generating um, promoted the American cause. So the story of American American Hollywood has been told by film scholars, you know, much more knowledgeable than me, but it's a very interesting case of how do we get an enormous cultural industry behind the war effort? And Creel at, at the CPI, the Committee on Public Information, knew that. He knew how important it was. And he also did this uh, incredible thing, really, in propaganda terms, where he mobilised 75,000 volunteers um, in the 20 months that America was in the war to go into the cinemas and theatres and to be called, they were the four minute men. They gave four minute spiels, which they wrote themselves. They were instructed on what should be in there, but they wrote it themselves to be so that their passion would come through. And in those four minutes in between the film reels being changed, they would promote the American war cause. They would tell the people in the cinema how important it was that they supported their country. And this was hugely successful. This was just one example, one of the numerous examples of how um, the American propaganda machine kicked in and how this war was enormously important for the American people, even though it's, as I said, not really remembered today. The American centenary of the First World War went off without fanfare and the memorial to the First World War has been mired in um, in mud, really. It's, it's projected to be completed in D.C., in 2024, but it's, you know, it missed the centenary because it couldn't get enough, the, the committee couldn't get enough funding for it, which means there wasn't enough public support for it. And in terms of the literature then, I mean, you, you mentioned an essay on the fiction by Scott D. Emmett. What does he cover there? I mean, is, is it fiction that was written at the time um, or, or things have been written since, you know, so developing that legacy of the war? I, I suppose I'm thinking of, I've been um, reading quite a lot of of novels written in the build-up to the Second World War uh, in Italy, and and there was such a rich seam of, of very pulpy literature that you know fetishized the, the airplanes and 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 patriotism and all of the sort of stuff you would expect. I wonder if similar to those Four Minute Men that you mentioned, there was a similar effort going on in in novels at the time. So I think there was both. There was both literature that was for the war and literature that was against the war. In general, this book is trying to go beyond the lost generation roster of writers that we think of when we think of the First World War. So they would be, uh, I'm sure our readers know, people like F. Scott Fitzgerald or Gertrude Stein or Ernest Hemingway, uh, writers that we associate with a disillusionment narrative of the war has ruined a certain generation and going beyond to consider the texts that were produced during the war and after the war and some of the chapters consider writing that comes much later up to the present day as well as writing that comes from the home front writing that came from combatants trying as we're doing in all of first world War literary studies to broaden out to think to broaden the canon of what we consider to be war literature um, and to think of it in um not not confined to the combatant narrative on the Western Front. So some of the writers, I may just talk about my own work here a little bit. Um, some of my own work is focused on Edith Wharton as an interesting example. I put a piece in the TLS in 2015. Um, it was my first piece in the TLS and it was a, an unknown short story by Wharton that dealt with the war. And that was a really interesting example to me because I believed when I put it in that it would be of interest to Wharton scholars and to, you know, readers, literary readers generally, but it wouldn't be much, much picked up beyond that. And what was interesting, you know, not to blow my own trumpet, but it was interesting to me because it generated international media coverage and even Obama's Committee on the Arts and 
humanities in the US picked up about it and tweeted about it. You know, I was interviewed by The Atlantic. And that was a really interesting, what do we call it, a learning experience for me, because it showed that there was this huge interest in writers that uh, are very important novelists in the early 20th century that people didn't realize were also war writers. Wharton um, turns from writing something like The Custom of the Country in 1913 to suddenly mobilizing on behalf of the war effort and producing a lot of material that that is aimed at convincing Americans to send money to France to fund the war charities that she has set up. And after the war, you know, she's writing for um, American soldiers in 1919. And then she turns suddenly and writes her most important work, I would argue, The Age of Innocence in 1920, which is in itself a kind of war text because she's absolutely eliding the memory of the war and going back to an earlier part of her lifetime, to um, her childhood, to the gilded age of her childhood. Um, But it was interesting to me how much people picked up on Wharton as a war writer. And it seems, I mean, there's a, it comes across so so clearly in in what you've been saying about both both of these books, really. Um, that that idea of, of of pieces of the puzzle that have been missing, I think, especially with the First World War. Here, uh, you make a point. You say uh, one book on the Civil War has been published every day since its conclusion in 1865. So there's a real sense of of uh, some serious catching up to be done. Mm. It's a really interesting case of a culture that has a very interesting cultural memory of war I say this having taught war in to you know Yale freshmen in 2014 who were all young enough to barely remember 9-11 and being so struck by what is considered the, the major wars in that in that landscape the first world war which is hidden away has been mm. completely forgotten even though it's also enormously important both for modernism and literary innovation and cultural innovation in the early 20th century, but also how the US becomes the the country of the 20th century, how the 20th century becomes the American century, how it assumes that dominant position on the world stage and holds it for the next 100 years. A very important new collection then. Um, Alice Kelly, thank you. Thank you very much for telling us about it. Thank you very much. That's all for this week. Our thanks go to Noor Sarawiwa, Andre nafis Saley, and Alice Kelly. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Lee Meyer. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.